Well, gosh, um, uh, this morning, just reflecting um, during the worship and just getting a sense of the room, um, and part of it might just be the fact that it's overcast, I don't know, but I do get the sense that a lot, a lot of you just kind of feel a bit worn out this morning. And, uh, you know, what Jesse had talked about, this idea of needing the peace, this space, um, I really feel that. Um, unfortunately, the passage that we've got uh, this morning, I mean, we're going to get there, but there are some hard words too. And uh, I get the sense that for some of you, it almost feels like it might feel like uh, going back into the fire for a little bit. But I do want to encourage you to try and, um, yeah, receive the peace, um, uh, receive the good news that, that, that's there. And uh, for the moment, to kind of bear with um, what really is this kind of source of conflict between Paul and the Corinthian church. So with that being said, and, and of course, yes, I do appreciate the applause beforehand. Um, see how it goes. Right, um, today we find ourselves in the final stretch of our series on Second Corinthians. It has been, to be honest, um, a bit of hard work. A recent commentator has described this letter as, I quote, an exegetical quarry with luminous veins of gold surrounded by almost impenetrable granite. <clears throat> What he means in layman's terms is, I think, uh, it's a lot of hard work uh, with often very little to show for it. And for the most part, I think this is a fair assessment. It is heavy lifting. It is demanding. It is not like those early gold rush stories in the States where lucky punters are finding nuggets of gold just sitting there on the ground or simply shining brightly beneath the surface of a shallow stream just there for the picking. This letter is more like a sustained promise, a continuing glimmer of something golden, just discernible, sometimes only a trace in the rock face, sometimes much more substantial, spurring you on to dig deeper and further in. It demands effort, commitment, and blood, sweat, and tears to make good on that promise, to discover the wealth that lies within that almost impenetrable granite. And it is in this respect that the letter provides us with a fitting metaphor for the process of reconciliation, which is is the theme we have been mining over the course of this series. Reconciliation, as I'm sure you know, is hard work, and it's not always successful. The process can be humiliating, and in fact should be humiliating, insofar as it requires humility. It demands that we give up our pride. It is about prioritizing a relationship over and above the rights and needs of ourselves. It can also mean appearing foolish. The guilty often do not get the punishment we think they deserve, and neither do the innocent. There is an awkward, messy vulnerability in it. In fact, it sounds a lot like the cross. The picture of Almighty God, author of creation, humiliating himself through his Son and suffering for his children who have abandoned him. Paul had written earlier to the Corinthians that the cross was foolishness to the Greeks, and so it was and is to societies that champion strength, self-sufficiency, wisdom, power, status, and glory. But what greater act has there been of reconciliation? It paved the way for God to be reconciled 
with humanity. And for men and women, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, to be reconciled to one another. And it is this message, this good news, this gospel, that Paul has been proclaiming. That is, as an apostle, at least one sent by God. I'm oh, sorry, as one sent by God. And it also lies at the very heart of the conflict between the church of, uh, at Corinth and Paul himself, their spiritual father. For as Jesse pointed out last week, in rejecting Paul for so-called super-apostles, that is, preachers whose lives better cohered with the cultural expectations of the Corinthians, they were also abandoning the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were well on their way to becoming, to paraphrase Sam Beam, uh, known to maybe three of you as iron and wine, um, They're these penthouse Christians who didn't want the pain of the scab, but wanted the scar. They wanted the resurrection, but weren't willing to endure the embarrassment and suffering that led to the cross. So it's in the lead up to the passage that we shall be reading today. Paul had been explaining to the Corinthians why he hadn't behaved like those aforementioned super apostles. When the, uh, when the latter, those apostles had visited the church. He explained why he didn't take money from the community as they did, why he knew more about the heart of the gospel, even while he wasn't as skilled at communicating at it, at least relative to them, and why, um, and why unlike those super apostles, he isn't in the business of self-promotion. See, the fact is, at this part of the letter, Paul is laying out all his cards on the table. He is embarrassed, he is exasperated, And he is passionately unwilling to let the church go until he has played his last card. And it is a messy business. The upcoming passage that we're going to read is full of irony, sarcasm, perhaps even more than a little desperation. And yet it also offers moments of startling clarity, of bright, shining streaks of the purest gold that course their way through this otherwise impregnable rock. So here we go. And um, I should mention that if what I say looks a little bit different from what shows up there, it's um, my way of trying to give you a better sense of the tone of the letter. So here we go. Let me say it again. Don't take me for a fool. But if you do, then bear with me as if I was a fool, so that I too may indulge in a little foolish self-promotion. Just don't forget whatever you do, that in this show of self-confidence, I am not referring to the kind of thing that the Lord would say, only what a fool would say. Since many are boasting according to the way of the world, I will also boast. And really, as wise as you are, putting up with a fool like me should be no problem at all. After all, you've been putting up with anyone, that is to say, any one of these super apostles, who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I must admit that we were much too weak for that. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, and now don't forget I'm speaking as a fool here, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Oh, sorry. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I must be crazy to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more often, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again and again. 
Five times I have received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. And three times I was shipwrecked. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and I have been naked. And besides everything else, every day I carry the constant burden of my care and concern for all the churches. Who is weak? Who is poor? Who is sick? And I do not feel weak, poor, and sick as well. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show how weak I am. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am telling you the truth. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the king of the Damascenes guarded in order to, sorry, had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from the window in the wall and slipped through his hands. But why stop there? I must go on with this self-promotion even though there is nothing to be gained from it. Let me go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know, for instance, a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in body or apart from the body, again, I don't know. God knows. Was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things. Things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that. But I will not boast about myself, except about how weak I am. And really, even if I should choose to indulge in some self-promotion, I would not actually be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I will stop there. So no one will think more of me beyond what comes from what I do or say, or because of those surpassingly great revelations I just talked about. You see, in order to keep me from thinking too highly of myself, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I have pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Three times. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. As a result, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now look what you've done. I have made a fool of myself for your sake. You ought to have been faithful to me, to have upheld my honor. Those super apostles have nothing on me, even though I am nothing. I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, one who was truly sent by God, which included signs, wonders, miracles. How could it be 
that I valued you less than the other churches simply because I didn't burden you by asking for payment? Forgive me this mistake. So then, what's going on here? Why the emphasis on foolishness and on boasting? The basic issue, the key issue, is that the church at Corinth had been swayed by those who, in their eyes at least, better played the apostolic part. That is to say, not only do these fellows preach a different gospel, one that, as we've seen before, requires additional rules to follow, but they also preach it differently. They are confident, assured, sophisticated, and know how to turn a phrase. These are all highly uh, valued qualities in the upwardly mobile, relatively rootless society of Corinth that Jason told us about a few weeks ago. So far, it seems, these super apostles are winning the PR battle. Some of the issues that Paul is facing are actually quite familiar to us. Corinthians' both letters are actually really relevant, even to the 21st century, if you can believe it. But some of the issues, maybe not so much. See, underlying the passage is a cultural assumption about the way uh, the world works. Um, That is written, as a friend of mine has put it, in um, letters too large to read. And what he means by that is that it was such a given within the culture that everyone just kind of assumed it to be the case, even if they didn't have to make it explicit. For us, for example, it might be the belief in free will, right? Everyone just kind of takes it for granted. We just assume it's true. Well, in first century Greco-Roman culture, like many others before and afterward, um, this culture was what's called a shame culture. This means that it was a culture in which a person's reputation was most highly valued. To be honored, or rather to be respected, was the goal A fine education, a respectable family heritage, and a strong public presence. These contributed to the image of a man who was at the top of his game. On the other hand, to be shamed, to be made a fool of, or to be dishonored, especially in public, was a great offense. Actually something worth killing over. It was not only deeply humiliating, but it could also lead to what was effectively social suicide. You became a social nobody an outcast. When we consider that Paul was an apparently unattractive and unimpressive character, to say the least, at least in terms of his uh, physical appearance, it is perhaps no surprise that the good news of a suffering Lord making all things new clashed with the social norms and expectations of the Corinthians. As I had suggested a few weeks ago, you're probably a bit embarrassed by him. On this occasion, though, it is Paul who is the one who is feeling embarrassed. These are his children, and they have decided that their spiritual dad, despite his great love for them and his tireless work on their behalf, is simply out of touch and is no longer worth listening to. I suppose, then, that the Corinthian church, the equivalent of spiritual adolescence, you know, not that any of you or I had a a rebellious stage, but uh, that's the kind of thing maybe we're looking at. Instead of trusting him, and more importantly, being faithful to the gospel he preached to them, they have begun to fall into step with the prevailing trends of their society. And it is is this which forces Paul into the sordid business of self-promotion. The kind of thing these super apostles do so well, and which was so highly valued in Corinthian culture. 
But as Paul says so clearly, self-promotion is simply not what Jesus is about. Look at the cross. What kind of marketing plan is that? There is no self-promotion in the cross. As we saw earlier in the letter, Paul admits to having been meek among them, not wanting to cut the figure of some high and mighty teacher, just as they would have found in the Corinthian corridors of power. The super apostles who came in Paul's wake, however, pushed them around and browbeat them into submission. It would seem now that Paul is paying for his humility. If only he had played the game. There are then two ways in which Paul suffers embarrassment for the church's sake. Number one, he, their spiritual father, is now faced with having to plead on his knees that his children return to him. It's a humiliating act. And number two, he feels it necessary to play the game of self-promotion that he knows is utter foolishness in the shadow of the cross. And yet he loves them. He will play the fool for their sake. It is humiliation for the sake of reconciliation. That is the way of the cross. As we have heard, Paul's boasting begins with this list of his qualifications. The first series emphasizes his Hebrew lineage, which is clearly, uh, which clearly meant something relative to the claims of these super apostles. But Paul, of all people, knows that this is irrelevant. After Christ and the pouring out of the Spirit upon all people, it doesn't matter. God doesn't love you more if you're Jewish, Gentile, Scottish, English, and even, dare I say it, Canadian. Have you seen our youthful prime minister? Perfect haircut, bulging biceps. It's like, (laughs) some of you find that funny. (laughs) Following this, he goes on to provide a laundry list of his sufferings, embarrassments, and abject failures. Very impressive. Um, Tom Wright has described this as turning up to a job interview and going on to list all the things that would make you a terrible candidate for the job. I'm trying to see, is Jesse here? Or do you go downstairs? Maybe. Oh, oh he's, he's hiding. I can see it now. Next semester. Uh, hey, uh, Jesse, heard you're uh, looking for a drummer. You know, I'd love to play drums in church, um, even if they're electronic. I'm sure it's no, no big difference. But uh, in the uh, spirit of full disclosure, I should point out that um, I'm not a big fan of rhythm. I can't dance or can't even clap in time. Also, one, two, three, four sounds like maths to me, and it's never my strong suit. More the creative writing type. Also, I think I'd rather play guitar. You get the idea. Now look, the litany of disasters that befell Paul probably sounds impressive to us. And I think that's probably because we actually haven't experienced them firsthand. Being stranded in open water for a day and a half actually sounds pretty terrifying, if you stop to think about it. But what we need to hear in this is that for his audience, it would actually appear little more than a sign of one, either his own weakness, or more seriously, number two, an indication of the lack of God's blessing on his ministry. God, it seems, is not on his side. How could he be? What a failure. Look at everything that has happened to him. And anyway, look at what he has to show for himself. He works harder. He finds himself in prison again and again. He keeps showing up to places where he isn't wanted and keeps getting beaten as a result. 
always taking his life into his own hands. Or I suppose you should say God's hands. But what is most significant here, however, is not these kind of great, you know, the beatings, the sufferings, etc., etc. It's that this great list of dubious achievements is crowned by the following. See, what really keeps Paul up at night is not the fear of suffering or embarrassment. It is the health and well-being of the churches, of the men, women, and children under his care. Are they sick? Are they poor? Are they beaten down by something? Have they become tired? Are they worn out from pushing upstream against the current of their culture? Have they given up the fight to be set apart, to honor the sacrifice Christ made on their behalf? You see, Paul's not going to abandon them. He is right there with them, each step of the way. In fact, he's on his knees. According to the social norms of Corinth, if not also these super apostles, Paul is both a sucker and a failure. And you know what? He'll take that. As long as people know the truth of the gospel, that's why he delights in the things that show his weakness. Paul's commitment to this vision of the gospel is evident even when he reveals the things he could boast about. This is these great spiritual visions and revelations. He speaks of a man who was caught up in the third heaven 14 years ago. Now it's uh, pretty clear as he goes on that he's actually talking about himself here. And therefore indicating that he has the spiritual as well as the racial qualifications to be an apostle. But he does so indirectly in order to ram home that that it's not really the point. It's not about him. Sure, it's maybe something worth boasting about, but it's actually besides the point. The point is to emphasize his weakness, which is where the thorn in the flesh comes in. It's the thorn that is the point of the story. If I can excuse, if you can excuse the pun. <laughs> and does Phil excuse the pun? I don't know. Maybe <laughs> the thorn is the point of the story. Ha <laughs> ha. It is an important lesson for us who go to a charismatic church or involved in these kind of circles, I think. If you've been around for long enough, you will know that while dramatic spiritual experiences can be life-changing, they do not necessarily result in changed lives. Uh, Many years ago, while I was still in high school, I went to the Philippines on a short missions trip. Now, these kinds of things are usually better for the people going than for the people who are being missionized. And I don't actually mean that in a cynical sense. Um, Oftentimes, it really is helpfully eye-opening for Westerners who... um, are able to see how privileged they are in terms of kind of material needs anyways, but also, quite frankly, how much unhappier they are with their lives, especially relative to the people they are missionizing. Start wondering about the kind of cultural baggage you've got, I suppose. In any case, um, my group went went to Palawan, which is the westernmost and most underdeveloped island in the Philippines. And we went down to the southern tip and did a variety of things that provide money for a new building for a local community, medicine for a tribe living up in the mountains, and even a basketball game in the center of town, uh, which we graciously lost, of course. Sign of our Christian humility. What I will remember most distinctly, however, is one Sunday morning, the group split into uh, maybe twos, sorry, um, uh, groups of three and four. We each went to a different church along with some other Filipinos from, um, Christian Filipinos from Manila to preach at local churches. We were both basically supposed to give testimonies along with a translator. Um, and it was in a, uh, this particular church was in a small village uh, without paved roads, um, without electricity. 
Anyway, the Spirit of, the God, of, the Spirit of God fell heavy upon that congregation in a way that I've only seen very rarely. And that was the music, actually. <laughs> you should keep it on. It'll help with the story from strength to strength. Anyways, right, the Spirit of God fell heavy. People were filled with joy, tears, the whole thing. And I can remember looking distinctly over a friend of mine. He was just uh, about a year older than me. We were in the, on the basketball team together. He was there, eyes closed, praying over people, ministering uh, over people. Just fully invested. I mean, I still remember it so clearly. But you know, maybe a year or so later, guy left his faith behind. Man, he's not the only one I know from those days. No particular reason, really. I mean, other than that he just wanted to be like any other guy who wanted to enjoy his late teens, early 20s in Vancouver, without feeling compelled to live, live differently. Now, the point isn't to point the finger at the guy. I mean, I really liked him, still do. It's just that at the end of the day, these experiences, these spiritual highs, they won't sustain you. And frankly, if they don't urge you, to, urge you on to seek after Jesus with greater love, strength, and conviction, then they may as well be worthless. They really are, to be blunt, the spiritual equivalent of a one-night stand. They're nothing to grow old with. So anyway, the visions. Paul tells us about them, but only to say that these were followed by, up by a thorn in the flesh. And what does he mean by that? Who knows? Could be a physical ailment, spiritual opposition, temptation. And you know what? Three times he asked for this thorn to be taken away, but it wasn't. Now this is Paul, remember, apostle of Christ, the guy who ascended to the third heaven. Three times and nothing. Well, no healing at least. But a word. The Lord told him, and this is one of these veins of gold in the otherwise impenetrable granite that we talked about earlier. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, do we need to hear that this morning? Does that resonate with you? Or is it hard to hear? The great revelation that Paul experiences is not then the ascension into heaven, the spiritual high. It is the realization that God's power isn't about Paul putting on a show, about building his self-esteem, about God helping those who help themselves. God's power is fully, um, is fully evident in Paul's lack of ability. His lack of strength, his lack of success. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Less of Paul means more of God. Do you know that God does not look down on our weakness, on our suffering, on our failures? In a way that may have become increasingly all too um, unfamiliar to us. In these things, insofar as you are weak, insofar as you are suffered, that you feel alone, do you know that you appear more like Jesus to the Father? Do you know that? You're more like his son and daughter. Do you know that? Do you know that your weakness, your self-acknowledged, utterly bare, God take absolutely everything because I can't do this anymore, that weakness is like soil uniquely prepared for the work of a good gardener. 
just we talked about last week. Do you know that he will sow seeds in that soul, nourish and protect its shoots, and then produce a harvest beyond your wildest imagination? Just see, if you let him, he will make all things new. Jim Houston, who is well known uh, for a variety of works in spiritual formation, has often reflected that we assume that God wants us for our strengths, the things that we think we do well. Am I a good public speaker? Then I should be a preacher. Am I a good singer? Then I should lead worship. And now, of course, on the contrary, if you don't think you're a good, um, that you're all that good at anything, well, you know, too bad for you, I guess. If this is what we're about, then we've completely missed the point. Gifts are good, but they don't define you. They certainly aren't why God loves you. In fact, as Jim puts it, God often desires to work through our weakness. The stuff we're not good at. The fact is, if we put ourselves and our strengths front and center, not only do we uh, run the risk of getting into God's way, but serving God can often turn into a way of serving our ego. As I said, there is no self-promotion in the cross. Are you poor in spirit? Yours is the kingdom of God. Are you in mourning? You will be comforted. Are you meek? You shall inherit the earth. Didn't Jesus call these people blessed? If you are among these things, then that's for you too. So, as we come to a close, Paul has made himself a fool for the sake of the Corinthian church. The saddest thing is that when it gets to it, it gets down to it, a major sticking point is about money. At this point, we need to circle back now to the importance of honor in a shame culture. These super apostles took money from the church. Paul did not. He wanted to work with his hands so that he would not be a burden to them. Now, this double act of Paul working with his hands and of not receiving payment from the church was deeply problematic according to the standards of the day. What self-respecting teacher would work with his hands? Moreover, what self-respecting community would be so dishonorable as not to pay the one who had labored to instruct them in the ways of the faith. That might be worth left hanging the air for a moment. After all, hadn't Paul received money from the other churches? Why not them? It's an affront. You see, Paul wanted to show them that the gospel is a free gift. And not only that, but it must also be received with humility. There is no self-promotion in the cross but there is eternal life. It is hard work and it is messy. It can involve chipping away at life, seeing only a glimmer in the rock face, sometimes little more than a promise that true gold lies further in for those who persevere. But it also affords you the freedom to be weak so that you may be strong, the freedom to suffer for the sake of the gospel, to identify more fully with Christ. The freedom to, to appear foolish for the sake of reconciliation. Folks, the best thing we can do is to offer what we have. Our strengths as well as our weaknesses. The British stiff upper lip might have worked for the empire, but it doesn't work in God's kingdom. It really doesn't. There is no keep calm and carry on. We are going to exhaust ourselves if we continue to reshape the cross according to the world's frame. There is no peace there, and there is no life beyond the grave. Let God work through your weakness. 
And if necessary, be willing to play the fool. Whether in reconciling yourself to another person or even in reconciling yourself to God. In the eyes of the watching world, it may seem mad, but it is the way of the cross. Let's pray.